This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is Mount Sinai Medical Center's Professor Shauna Swan to discuss her recently published book, co-authored with Stacey Colina, Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. Professor Swan, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. Professor Swan's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, Countdown discusses the relationship between our exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals, frequently just termed EDCs, and the dramatic decline in global fertility rates over roughly the past half century, a finding that was initially documented in the early 90s and in, again in 2017, when Professor Swan and her colleagues published a meta-analysis that received considerable attention. Over the past four decades, the book authors note sperm levels among men in Western countries have declined by nearly 60%, with adverse reproductive changes in males increasing by 1% per year. In theory, at least, by 2045, Western men will be infertile. The work also discusses the adverse effects EDCs, including phthalates, have on female fertility, as well as adverse intergenerational effects how they influence gender fluidity and dysphoria, their contribution to the prevalence of major disease conditions, and several confounding effects that magnify the problem. The work concludes by arguing that policymakers need to do a far better job at regulating EDCs, in part suggesting the U.S. take a lesson from the European Union's REACH program. Finally, I'll note the authors published a summary of their work in the March 16th Scientific American in an article titled, Reproductive Problems in Both Men and Women Are Rising at an Alarming Rate. So with that as background, um, Shauna, let's go to uh, the basics here. What are endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and where are they commonly present? So, David, um, endocrine-disrupting chemicals are chemicals that disrupt our endocrine system, as the name suggests, that is, our hormones. And um, they do that in many ways, and some of them actually decrease um, the level of the hormone, might increase the level, so anti or pro-androgen or estrogen, for example, and or they might interfere with transport or in other ways um, with the transfer of information from the organ to the receptor that's, you know, that's receiving them. So um, the focus of my work has been on those endocrine disruptors which can affect the steroid hormones and particularly testosterone and estrogen because those are so intimately tied to reproductive health, which is my field. Okay, thank you. Um, so these are, uh, your readers or listeners rather may know these initials, BPA, PVC, amongst others. So these affect hormonal levels or disrupt and this directly relates to our reproductive system. So the question is, and it has effects both on men and women. So let's start on the male side. So how do they alter male development? Or what is, as, or as to phrase, uh, the phthalate syndrome? 
Okay, so the phthalate syndrome is obviously an example of how phthalates can disrupt male reproduction and actually just one aspect of male reproduction. So the phthalate syndrome is the name that's been given by reproductive toxicologists to the collection of changes in the male genitals that's observable at birth when the mother has been exposed to higher levels of the phthalates that are capable of lowering testosterone, that is the anti-androgenic phthalates. In particular, I, if you want, I can go through the, the, the alphabet soup, but basically that's probably enough to say some, but not all phthalates do have the ability to lower testosterone, and those are most influential in changing the general development of males in the, in the womb and observable at birth. Okay. And so uh, just to add, per your uh, book, you do note that other than uh, decreases in fertility, commensurate uh, testosterone levels have been decreasing uh, 1% per year along with uh, sperm counts. Um, so let's, yes. let's, let's plan. And the, and the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that the um, initial uh, impetus for our book Countdown was the decline in sperm count and concentration, not in fertility. They're, of course, not the same thing. So um, count is um, how many sperm are in the sample. In total, concentration is the number in a unit area that is milliliter. But fertility, um, as I'm using it and as demographers use it, is the number of children that a woman or a couple has. Both of those have declined at about 50% per year. However, the sperm count result is only a result for Western countries, whereas the fertility decline is worldwide. Worldwide, yes. Okay. Let's, let's, let's play this out then. Uh, so let's go to uh, the effect it has on women's ability to, to uh, successfully reproduce. So let's talk about the effect on women first. Uh, and, and then I'll go from there. Okay, so um, there are a number of um, EDCs that affect women's ability to reproduce. And one really um, good study on specific chemicals is the series, I should say, the series of studies conducted out of Harvard by the Earth Study, which is showing that measured levels of EDCs in the woman's and the man's, by the way, body at the time of assisted reproduction affects how the, affects the success of that procedure. So the number of eggs retrieved, the, the quality of the eggs, the embryo quality, implantation rates, birth rates. And so that is really proof of principle that it, this direct interference with conception by these chemicals. There's also a lot of evidence showing that these chemicals increase the rates of miscarriage. And you can see that in that study and in many other studies and natural conceptions as well. And I've studied miscarriage in relation to EDCs. And um, there are also other problems such as um, increases in um, diminished ovarian reserve so that there are fewer eggs and eggs of fewer, poor quality when a woman is older than would be expected otherwise. Um, there's links to endometriosis and so on. So pretty much every aspect of women's reproductive health is affected by endocrine disruption. And what's interesting is that the rate of declines uh, are comparable about 1% per year to the decrease in sperm quality and the decrease in fertility. 
Okay, thank you. Um, on the uh, there are parameters. So this is a weedy question. There are parameters to measure. I found this interesting parameters to measure sperm quality. Can you explain those? Sure. So if a man goes to have his um, semen quality assessed, um, his sample will be reviewed for many factors. The count is one of them, count and concentration. Another is the morphology, the shape of the sperm. Um, there are two-headed sperm and two-tailed sperm and tapered sperm and so on and so forth. In fact, the percent of sperm that are, are um, normal morphology, that the past the morphology test is um, low, maybe 15, 12 to 15 percent, you know, on average. And, and then motility is how they swim, how they move or don't move, whether they swim in circles, whether they progress. It's called progressive motility is what you want so that the sperm will move along um, and be able to conceive the pregnancy. And then there's also the, the question of chromosomal aberrations, abnormalities, so there's uh, that's assessed as well uh, when a man has his um, semen quality evaluated. Okay, thank you. You did note um, the, the constellation of effects or negative effects on women and their ability to reproduce. Uh, so I'll just, per your book, just note a few more. You note the rev, uh, rising prevalence of early puberty. You mentioned uh, endometriosis, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, miscarriages, diminished ovarian reserve, as you noted. So there's a long list of problems. The problem is magnified by the fact that you note this as well. Uh, it's almost a piling on effect. You note they're also, because of our lifestyle, particularly in the West, there are also a number of confounding factors that exacerbate this problem. And of course, not surprisingly, we start with obesity and diabetes. Uh, what others are there that make this or magnify the problem? So the lifestyle factors, which is, I think, what you're talking about, Correct, yes. are also really important. Yes. And they um, can be independent of the chemical exposure or they can exacerbate the exposure. So both can be going on. And so these are, they tend to be factors that affect our overall health. So if you think about what's good for, say, your heart health, uh, you might come up with the same list. So they are smoking, of course, is number one. Um, and then there are the factors that um, have a kind of a U-shaped curve where there's a sweet spot, if you will. So things like alcohol, binge drinking is a risk factor. Moderate drinking is not. Um, and absence of drinking actually might make things a little worse in terms of fertility um, as, it, as it does for your heart health. Um, similarly, exercise. Uh, extreme exercise can uh, interfere with um, fertility, and so can lack of exercise. So again, there's a sweet spot for that. And then there's um, actually marijuana. There's just been a study come out that showed that a moderate mar marijuana use may be actually a somewhat protective of fertility, whereas um, excessive would be harmful. So um, for each of these, we want to ask um, where in the spectrum, where in the dose are we looking? Then there's also stress. I don't think any, well, I shouldn't say that. Certainly heavy stress is, is bad for your fertility. It's possible that um, light stress might be helpful, but I don't know that. Um, and then there's the question of diet. So overall, I've summarize the results on diet to say that a Mediterranean diet is somewhat protective of your fertility. Um, bad things to avoid would be um, fatty foods, processed meats. Um, and I would 
recommend that people, if they can afford it, that they eat organic because many of the pesticides in foods, of course, are endocrine disruptors. Okay, thank you again. Uh, not surprisingly, you make mention of uh, testosterone replacement therapy uh, or the increasing popularity or use thereof, but that comes with a, and as I think you phrased uh, in the book, um, wait for it, which is what's the negative possible negative consequence of testosterone replacement therapy? Yes. And um, so along with sperm counts and fertility going down, testosterone is going down at the same rate, by the way. Right. Um, and it, yeah, so with testosterone decreasing, we have more and more men and, and very young men actually going for um, testosterone replacement therapy, TRT. And um, that they want that kick to their libido and to their muscle strength and so on. But what they don't realize that, and here's, wait for it, that it also lowers their sperm count. And that's counterintuitive, but um, that's what happens. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's go. You did mention uh, fertility rates worldwide. I found these statistics uh, not too surprising. I did know uh, that in the U.S. Uh, it has decreased. Um, uh, I'll just give the worldwide, you say worldwide fertility dropped 50% between 1960 and 2015. And I'll just give the U.S. fertility rate, which you note that in 2017 was one8 uh, a 50% drop again from 1960, but this is a worldwide reality, correct? It is happening worldwide, um, some places um, faster than others. And you know what, what your listeners probably know, but might want to be reminded of that the a fertility is the number of children that a woman or a couple has. And um, that's a demographic definition. And and that if that number is 2.1, we say that it's at replacement level, which is the couple replacing themselves. But in Western countries, including the United States, we're below replacement now. And that's dropping. And in some countries, like Asian countries like Singapore and Korea, it's down to 1.0, which is extremely low. Nothing has come close to that in the past. And um, it's very difficult to get that number back up again, uh, governments are finding. Right. Uh, I, I noticed, I think the most dramatic was Hong Kong went uh, in this time period from 5.0 to 1.3, South Korea 6.1 to 1.1. And in Europe, of course, we well know, Italy and Spain particularly, you note. Let's move on to uh, two uh, questions, um, maybe in more logical order. Uh, you do, it doesn't seem to be crystal clear, but there does appear to some be some uh, research evidence that this can become an intergenerational problem. Can you explain how or why that is? Absolutely. Um, so there's been a lot of work on uh, um, epigenetic changes and and uh, changes across generations. But we don't have to look very far to be convinced of the following, that if the mother is exposed, then her, that's generation zero, if you will, and then her child in the womb is generation one is exposed. Inside that child, there are the germ cells for the next generation after that. So that gives you three generations of exposure just from the generation zero exposure. And then there are studies suggesting that this can be passed on subsequently to perhaps up to seven generations. And we have actually recent evidence 
from um, just one example. I'll give you. It's not an not a environmental chemical uh, generally thought of, but that's diethylsilbestrol. So that was a drug that women took. It's estrogenic. They took it to prevent miscarriage. It was used in the 60s. It stopped in 70 when the daughters were shown to have cancer. And now the grandchildren, and there are several papers on this now, are showing multi-generational effects of the grandmother's exposure. So we have very concrete evidence of this in human populations. So in sum, and, and I, I do want to get to this, as, as I mentioned in the intro, this gender fluidity and uh, dysphoria issue, but at, later in the book, you actually come to this conclusion or, or question that, uh, beg the question, because of this, to what extent do homo sapiens qualify under the definition of an endangered species? Can you discuss that, please? Yes. Um, so... There are multiple, there are five criteria that are listed by the U.S. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service, and um, their criteria is that you only have to meet um, one of these to be endangered, and we meet three. Um, and so those have to do with endangering our habitat, having insufficient regulations, and basically messing up our environment. <laughs> so um, you can read about that more in the book, or, or you could read it, David, if you want, but I don't have the book in front of me to, for the exact wording. But there's, there, we are, you know, we can be classified as an endangered species, according to those criteria. Interesting, interesting. Let's go to this uh, issue, related issue, again, of gender fluidity and gender uh, dysphoria. Can you explain the definitions thereof and why, why are these issues begged? How and why are these issues uh, or questions begged? Um, so, David, I have to say that um, we, I do not endorse the conclusion that endocrine disruptors are altering the rates of gender fluidity. Okay, just to be clear about that. I, I don't know. I have to say I don't know. Um, what we do know is that chemicals in the environment, we've seen this in wildlife, um, can uh, increase disorders of sexual development, certainly, and that's not the same thing as gender dysphoria at all, but that's the situation where, for example, you can cause uh, frogs to have ovaries and testes in the same, in the same animal, same individual. Um, and, and humans have disorders like that too. Um, you know, so um, that can be attributed, I think, to some extent, to endocrine disruptors. So if you move on from that, you get the next sort of level of uh, complication, and that's the uh, homosexuality. Um, and that, um, that can be also caused in animals. Uh, you can have uh, animals that, you know, with male-male uh, pairing, female-female pairing associated with endocrine disruptors. So that's, that, I think, is going to be in part associated, although there's clearly a genetic component to that. So we probably have some gene environment interaction going on here. The third part is the really hard part, and that's this transgender issue or the feeling of dysphoria, the feeling that you have been born into the wrong body, um, not the body for, you know, your genetic sex is not appropriate for your, for the way you feel about yourself. Okay. And we don't know, first of all, that that has increased, okay? Um, we know that there's more reporting of it, for sure. We know that there's more, you know, uh, more people that um, hold up their hands when asked 
you know, do you have gender dysphoria? But this was never asked before. This is a this is a recent question. We don't have surveys that go back and say, you know, 50 years ago, how many people had gender dysphoria? It just doesn't exist. So I can't say that this has increased. I can say we're more aware of it. Yes. Now, is it related to chemicals in the environment? I don't know. Um, the reason I don't know is because my research is guided and many scientist research is guided by animal studies, as I did with the showing the phthalate syndrome, which we haven't yet talked about really in, in humans. Um, I uh, proceeded from, you know, uh, in vitro data to animal models to human models. And we don't have any animal models for gender dysphoria. We can't ask the animal, how do you feel about your you know, your sex, your, you know, do you feel more like a male? Do you feel like a more, more like a female? Um, there's a little bit of evidence from um, Tyrone Hayes' experiments with frogs um, that are um, having eggs and testes in the same individual. And he notes that some of these seem to prefer a bottom versus a top position. But that's a really long reach to say that atrazine, which causes the testes and ovaries to be in a single individual, that that is also causing gender dysphoria, because we don't know what's going on in an animal's mind. If they can even think about this, they don't usually have a sense of self at that uh, you know level of development. So I don't know how to answer this question um, in terms of our exposures as humans. Thank you. But obviously, it is uh, an interesting uh, question begged. Just to clarify, and you do say this uh, and it's very helpful. I found in the te or the volume, which is um, uh, sex versus gender identity. Sex is a term biology. Gender, as you suggested, by one's sense of self. Um, let's go. To, let's go to uh, obviously uh, chem these chemicals appearing in the environment. And and just by way of background, it might be helpful. This is this is a, a concept. These chemical the production. And use of these chemicals is really, really begun as a post World War II phenomenon, correct? Yes. Okay. All right. So we have and 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 we should note, and I just want to note that they are um, many of them made from um, petroleum byproducts. So the rise of petroleum industry correlates with the rise of production of these chemicals. Okay. Thank you. Let's go to you. Do have a, a discussion about beyond the effect this uh, these chemicals have on our species? Uh, I think the phrase you use is imperiling, uh, imperiling the planet. Uh, and of course, that includes a discussion of uh, plastic waste or the accumulative plas plastic waste found in our oceans. But if you give a, a I think it is worthwhile to say there, there is a there is an overall biosphere negative effect here. Absolutely. And and these first of all, these chemicals are found everywhere. It's recently been, um, some of these have been found at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, as well as at the top of Everest. Just, just this week, I think, there was a uh, paper out on that. So um, they're transported, um, you know, through the motion of air and water to every place in the planet. There's nowhere that's um, protected against this. And as a result, animals everywhere show body burdens of these chemicals in their bodies, and they show effects. Uh, on their fertility and their reproductive health everywhere. Yes, yeah, some are stored in uh, uh, fat tissue and some are water-soluble, but regardless, you do say, and I appreciated this um, a sentence, a concluding sentence, 
were surrounded by the same toxic stew. Uh, stew. Uh, so let's let's go to policy uh, now uh, and move uh, toward it. You you do have you, the volume concludes with a somewhat lengthy conversation about to the extent to which we've regulated, uh, largely to the extent to which we've not regulated uh, uh, chemicals. Let me just ask you a general: What's your general overview comment on regulation of of these chemicals to date? It's totally inadequate. Okay. <laughs> That's a precise <laughs> and exact uh, answer. Thank you. Um, uh, so just to pick up on that, you do say in the text, quote unquote, frankly, I continue to be astonished that more public health experts aren't more upset about these harmful substances. So you do state that we have approximately 85,000 chemicals uh, in wide use in this country. Um, however, uh, despite uh, some uh, related legislation and regulation, uh, we do, as you say, uh, at very least a poor job. You do reference, uh, and I, I noted this in the intro, EU's REACH. It's called the Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals uh, Policy. Can you explain what that attempts to do? So REACH is a EU legislation. And it actually has gone uh, quite a bit beyond what anything we've done in the United States because it requires a manufacturer to demonstrate safety of a product before it's introduced into commerce. And so we don't have any regulation like that. We have um, kind of the opposite. It's assumed to be safe until proven harmful. And so that means, for example, when BPA was shown to be harmful and um, there was a big press to have it removed um, from products that manufacturers did that and they labeled their products BPA free. And then they substituted alternatives like BPF as in Frank and BPS as in Sam, which did the same thing, particularly BPF is, is very harmful, very estrogenic. And so the consumer buying something labeled BPA free is in some sense tricked because they thought they were buying a safe product. And in fact, they're getting an equivalent to BPA without knowing about it. Okay, you summarize uh, Reach's approach as, quote-unquote, no data, no market, which I think is the uh, summarize as well. I did read, you gave a, an interview recently uh, to give an idea of this problem or the magnitude. In an in a interview you did for Yale uh, recently, you noted that there are 11 chemicals banned from personal care products in the U.S., you stated there are over 1,000 in the European Union. That's correct? Yes, that's correct. So that that indicates how much less effective, if, if you will, our lack of regulation is here. Um, it's basically no, non-existent. And despite we have, yeah. I should note, we do have the U.S. Consumer Product Safety uh, Commission. I did find it interesting. You made note of where yes. the NIH is on this. And the NIH, NIH rather, National Institutes of Health, is basically nowhere on this, correct? Well, it's not the NIH. NIH, you're saying? Yes. National Institute of Health? Yes, correct. Yes. Well, the NIH's job is not to regulate, of course. But, and I, but what NIH does not do does not have a, for example, a, a center for reproductive health. So there are 
37 NIH centers, and they're, some of them are very specific to, to different, you know, health outcomes like diabetes and so on, but there's nothing on reproductive health. It's very difficult to get reproductive health studies funded. So I, in the, that sense, I would say that NIH has not been helpful, certainly in the area of reproductive health. Uh, although my studies have been funded, I have to say, through the National Institutes of Environmental Health Science. So in environmental health sciences, uh, you can, by showing, you know, by linking environment to health outcomes, you can get research funding um, for, uh, for those studies. Right. You do note uh, NICHD, uh, that they do study related uh, issues of birth defects and maternal mortality, but not sperm decline. I should say as an aside, I did right. work at NINR, and I, I do remember uh, this subject never came up despite um, efforts by some to uh, make mention of the problem. Uh, m moving on, um, you do note as well that some states, U.S. states have taken some action and some corporations, large corporations. Uh, you mentioned Wegmans, Walmart, Home Depot. My uh, guess is you wouldn't that's not really the way for us to go, that this really needs to be a national effort, I'm assuming, correct? Absolutely. Okay, okay. With the remaining uh, time that we have, um, in the intro I said, and, and uh, so just to give you a, 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 an opportunity to, to make comment on this, I said in theory, con uh, considering the, the annual decline um, in uh, sperm count, that in the near term, next 25 years or so, uh, Western men in Western countries uh, could be, statistically at least, uh, infertile. What's your sense of, you said that you did not think, I think it was again in the Yale interview, uh, you didn't think that we'd get to that point, but, but could you explain or clarify okay. where we're going? Yeah. Yeah, so when we looked at the sperm decline, um, based on our meta-analysis published in 2017. We also looked at not the entire 40-year period, but also the most recent 30 years and looked for the slope, the most recent 20 years, 10 years, and so on. And there was no evidence that the decline was lessening. There was no evidence of a flattening out. Now, that said, we're now at 47. We were in 2011, I should say, at 47 million per milliliter, which is very low. Let me point that out. Because at 40, below 40, a man can be considered subfertile because it's taking longer and longer for him to conceive a pregnancy. So if the, if the count is going to continue to decline at 1% per year, and suppose it has declined because we don't have the recent data, but suppose it has declined at that rate over the past 10 years since we've done that study, then we would already be below 40. And a high percent of men will be going to infertility clinics. This is a median, by the way. So mm -hmm. half the men will be bigger, half will be smaller. But as that curve approaches zero, it can't actually touch zero, you understand, because right. firm concentration can't be negative. So what we have to, what's going to happen, like for all biological curves, there's going to be what we call mathematically an asymptote, a point at which you can come closer and closer but never reach. And that's what has to happen. On the other hand, if we clean up our act, and these chemicals, by the way, many of them are 
short-lived, non-persistent, leaves the body in four to six hours, we can make that curve turn up again. And that's what can happen if we, if we control our environment. Right. You did say, per the 47 million per milliliter, you did say in, in 1973, the measure was 99 million per milliliter to give a sense it's, it's more than a half. Uh, my last question, I'd be remiss exactly. if, I, if I didn't ask uh, this last question. You do have a chapter on what, uh, let's just, just term them consumers, I guess, or what individuals can do to reduce uh, their chemical footprint, as is frequently phrased. So what advice would you give the listener relative what individuals can do uh, for themselves? Right. So um, first of all, I'd say first thing they should do is buy Countdown. <laughs> of course, I would say that. But <laughs> um, here I, I say that because there are several chapters with Correct. lots yes. of specifics of what you can do, right? And, and, and resources and so on and websites that you can go to. So, but, but beyond that, I can say um, I would suggest swapping out plastic whenever you can and replacing it with glass and ceramic particularly in your kitchen or metal, as long as it doesn't go into the microwave. Never microwave in plastic. Try not to store in plastic. Try to buy unprocessed food, which hasn't been processed through plastic tubing. Try to buy organic, although that's expensive. Um, Clean your house with a HEPA filter because these things are in dust. Um, Don't use fragrance products because fragrance products contain high levels of phthalates. Um, And I think overall... The overriding overall recommendation I would have is be aware. Be aware that every product in your home has the potential to contain endocrine disruptors that will leave the product, get into your air, get into your body. So think about, and foods will get into your, <laughs> and you'll eat them and you'll get directly into your body. So I think, um, you know, an awareness, which no most people don't have unless they work in the field, that we are surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of chemicals every day that can affect our reproductive health. Yes, I did find you did note carpeting as well. Uh, yes, not carpeting. Not, yeah, not advice. Cushioning. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not advice. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Shauna, thank you so much for this uh, 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 quick overview. Although uh, we covered a lot of ground, I'm very appreciative. It is, needless to say, uh, disturbing, um, but my uh, congratulations for putting the volume together, and let's hope it's um, uh, considered. And uh, in fact, I could tell you, I just had a conversation with Hill staff this afternoon and made mention of it. Uh-huh. So let's hope for the best. Thank you Great. again. Thanks so much, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.